Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Jana McCamey. It's August 8th, 2023. We're at Vitaco working in Portland. Jana, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, first question is why wine? Well, that's a great question to start with. Um, you know, for me, it was a sort of a circuitous route to, to where I'm sitting today. Um, I would say it started when I was studying abroad uh, in Germany and uh, got exposed to wine there. Um, there were a lot of international students studying at the university as well, and we would socialize, and there'd be students from Italy and Spain and France and other places, and uh, that was really my first opportunity to try wine from those countries. Um, and for me, it was, uh, at the time I was studying history, uh, and it was a really interesting way to uh, bring together sort of geography and uh, food and culture and history. Um, I felt like wine kind of pulled all those things together interestingly for me. So it piqued my, um, my interest in wine uh, and then, you know, continued with my college career uh, and was heading on the trajectory, uh, career trajectory that didn't involve wine. Um, I ended up completing a history and German degree uh, and um, became interested in more of the policy side of the world because I spent a summer in DC. Um, I had originally wanted to do an internship with the American History Museum to do a curation internship, uh, but uh, my dad, who's a farmer and was involved in advocacy work, had convinced me to apply with one of the congressional offices, and so I did that, and they got back to me first. <laughs> and so I was in Washington, D.C. already doing a Capitol Hill internship when the Smithsonian got back to me, so it's kind of where roads diverged um, in, in my life. And so, um, you know, I had had this experience um, in Washington, D.C., where my eyes kind of opened up to the policy world. And then right after that, I went to, to Europe to study abroad. And that's where you know I became introduced to wine, but also international policy work, which really piqued my interest. And I was really excited about opportunity to work more in the diplomatic field. Um, and so you know I was kind of had wine as this hobby interest, um, but not as a career aspiration. So I ended up doing a um, master's degree at the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown. I'd done internships with the European Parliament in Brussels. And uh, so, you know, went on that career trajectory more in the international affairs uh, space. But um, while I was in DC, I, um, you know, decided I wanted to work at a wine shop as a hobby job, kind of an evening weekend job. Um, when I was working uh, in lobbying, um, I was working for a law firm for a variety of different clients, including like the government of Mexico. Um, and I just decided, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm going to 
pursue a, a hobby job because uh, I wanted to learn more about wine. So it was a wine shop at, at DuPont Circle in Washington, D.C. called Best Sellers, and they arranged wine by uh, whether it was juicy or fruity or bold, uh, not by region or, or varietal. Um, and so I got you know my um, little bit of wine learning there at this um, wine shop. But uh, as you know, fate would have it, I ended up getting um, kind of my dream job, which was other than this dream job. <laughs> but the dream job at the time was with the European Union at their delegation in Washington, D.C. And I was working on energy, environment, and transportation policy. Um, you know, one other element of my background that I should mention is that my mom is originally from Finland. And so um, I kind of had that international mindset, uh, even though um, I grew up in Wyoming, which is where my dad was from. Um, gosh, I feel like I'm kind of going all over the place, but you know it, how it's coming together in my mind. Uh, but um, so my mom was from Finland, so I kind of had that European perspective, and I have dual citizenship um, with Finland. So that was uh, you know a really great opportunity for me to be able to work on the diplomatic side of things, but not um, it wasn't kind of overseas. But I was working with colleagues from most of the EU countries, um, but in Washington, D.C. That was a really amazing opportunity, which meant I had to give up my hobby job because that job required uh, a lot of my focus. Um, but I maintained more of an interest in wine and did some wine tourism, came out. Um, you know, My mom grew up on the Oregon coast after they moved over from Finland when she was seven, so she grew up in Astoria. So came out to Oregon wine country, you know, kind of in the mid to late um, 2000s and you know taste a lot of wine here and um, also um, in Europe a bit and so I maintained that interest but it wasn't kind of a career path mm -hmm. uh, and um, I spent almost six years working with the European Union which is a really fantastic opportunity um, DC is a an amazing place to get for friendships, for education, for career prospects. Um, a little less so on the work-life balance. Um, I kind of realized when people would ask what your hobbies are, and you're like, oh, it's related to work more. Um, you know, I want to be someone that has more outside interests. So uh, looked at different places to possibly move and. Portland, Oregon was you know top of the list, um, and so in 2012 moved out to Oregon and kind of left behind that that DC life. But just before moving here, um, I spent a stint in in London, um, and that's where I had my second wine hobby job. <laughs> so I just couldn't quite get away from wine. Uh, I was taking a leave of absence from my European um, Union job, thinking that I might go back to that for a while or you know, look at different paths, like um, ultimately coming out to Oregon. Um, so I was like, I'm going to go to Europe for a little bit and just kind of see what, what comes up, maybe just travel um, or type wine into the search engine of a job site. And a job came up to be assistant manager of a wine bar and seller at Beedales, um, which was at Borough Market. Um, if folks have been to London, that's kind of the foodie market at the base of the London Bridge. Um, and so it was a really fun opportunity to, uh, you know, sell wine and to meet a variety of consumers and le learn a little bit more about the UK consumer. Um, just as a funny anecdote, um, I think my favorite customer was an English guy who came in on a date and he, we would 
provide very nice glasses if someone bought a bottle that was above a certain price point. This person didn't buy a bottle above that price point, but really wanted those glasses to impress a date that he was with. Um, and so we opened the bottle for him, and uh, he decided he wanted to pour himself. And he poured the entire contents of the bottle between their two glasses. Um, which was pretty funny. <laughs> there were other, you know, uh, customers that were maybe a little more refined than that, but it was um, it was a great experience to kind of see uh, how different people behave um, and can consume wine. Um, another fun anecdote from that job was uh, we were close to what's called the City, which is the financial center for London, and so you'd get some high rollers that would come in and you know want to buy the most expensive bottle in the cellar. And we had these high top tables. And so bought a very expensive wine and wanted it poured for three uh, gentlemen. And one of them was gesticulating wildly and knocked the wine all over the place and broke the glasses. Um, so that was also pretty impressive. <laughs> but, uh, so that was a, it was a fun experience. Um, we served a lot of charcuterie and um, cheese plates and baguettes. And I never thought I would tire of those items, but um, I had to take about a year off after I left the wine bar before I wanted to see any of those items again. Um, so that was for about six months that I did that, and then it was time um, to refocus on more of my my career and a move out to, to Oregon. Um, I would never have dreamed that a job like mine with the Oregon wine growers would have been out there and an option. I was actually looking more in the um, renewable energy, clean energy space like Vestas and Iberdrola have um, offices here and that was more what I was focused on. Um, but through my networking, um, you know, I was, uh, I met our lobbyist who still serves as our lobbyist, Dan Jarman with Crosswater Strategies. Um, and two weeks after he and I had met, uh, for a networking meeting, he sent me a job opening with the wine growers. Uh, and he said, I don't know if you have any interest in wine, but take a look at this. And I was like, oh, well, actually, I do have an interest in wine. I've had a, you know, a couple hobby jobs and um, a lot of policy experience. And also, I grew up in a, a farming family, so really that agricultural perspective. And so I put my name in the, the hat um, and was able to get an interview and um, worked through the process. And I think that bringing together those different elements of my life, um, you know, the policy experience, the interest and experience in wine, and then the agricultural background and you know diplomatic experience never hurts when you're dealing with lots of passionate people um, like we have here in the wine industry. And so uh, in August of 2012, I joined the wine growers. And at that time, it was manager of uh, government affairs and member relations. It was kind of everything. We were really, we were still a small nonprofit back then. It was very small. That is quite a route to get. I know, isn't it a little bit circuitous? Well, I want to come back. We'll pick it up there in a second, but I want to back up a little bit. You've mentioned a little bit about kind of upbringing. Tell us a little bit about kind of life before college for you and about as you were sort of heading towards college, what made you decide the route you took? Well, so I grew up um, in a small town in Wyoming, which is where my dad was from. It's called Warland, Wyoming. And um, on my dad's side, my grandparents uh, both moved out when they were younger from Arkansas and Missouri. Um, it was in the you know kind of early part of the 1900s when that area was really um, getting more developed and turned and in, turned into farming land. And so um, they had moved out to farm sugar beets. 
uh, my grandmother's side to actually farm, and my grandfather had come out as a teenager to work at the f factory that was in my small town. Um, it, at that point, it was called the Wyoming Sugar Company. Um, and so, you know, I grew up in a town of 5,000 people. Um, that was the big town for the surrounding area. The nearest shopping mall was a three-hour drive away. So, you know, f we would take these kind of epic shopping trips up to the mall in Billings, Montana. Um, and this was before, you know, all of the internet shopping. Uh, and so, you know, it was a very, um, yeah, it was a really nice place to grow up in that, you know, you just could be a child. We had a nice community. Uh, my family was in farming. My dad and uncle, um, they founded, or didn't found, they kind of took over from my grandparents' McKamey Farms and then expanded that. They were growing sugar beets and malting barley primarily for Coors. Um, it was a sp particular kind of barley that they were growing. Um, and so, you know, grew up with a very um, strong focus on agriculture. My dad um, had met my mom at Oregon State and he was studying uh, finance and had graduated at the top of his class, very smart man, and um, they moved down to California um, after graduating. My mom had done um, like home interior, um, home economics degree, and so they moved down to California, and she was working for JCPenney, and he was working for Heister Corporation, which many in the wine industry know about because it's the forklifts and such. Uh, and he was going to do the corporate route, and she was doing kind of the fashion route, and then um, they decided to move back to where my dad grew up and kind of get into farming. So he he, he wasn't kind of your, I don't want to say typical farmer, but he had a little bit of a different background in that he had studied finance, he was very business minded, so he handled a lot of the business side of things in addition to the farming, but my uncle was, you know, really, really, um, you know, into the farming side of things. So my dad over the years got involved in advocacy work, which is kind of interesting considering that's where I ended up. Uh, he was president of the local sugar beet growers association. Um, and would travel to Washington, D.C. quite a bit and do advocacy work. Uh, sugar is a very uh, complex international trade issue. So I remember him going to GATT negotiations in Belgium when I was a child uh, and bringing back kind of these historical um, books about uh, Belgium. It was probably, I don't know, maybe 10 at the time. And so, you know, he was very engaged on those kind of policy issues for a long time. We would have, you know, members of the Wyoming um, congressional delegation. There was always three of them, two senators and one representative, you know, coming through town and meeting. And, you know, he was very engaged on those, um, those issues. So uh, I didn't think I was going to go anywhere near agriculture, really. I was um, very much into language and history and linguistics and those type of things. So I, I thought I would become a history professor, kind of going into college. Um, so I knew I was going to do an advanced degree. And I, uh, being practical of nature, didn't want to spend too much money on an undergrad degree knowing eventually I'd want to do more. So I uh, went to the University of Northern Colorado, which was just over the border, um, where I had gotten a scholarship. Uh, to study there and had um, a really nice experience with the history department there and the German department. 
Um, and I was, as I said, kind of thinking about the history professor route. And uh, you know, I had studied abroad my junior year, as I mentioned, in Germany, where I became exposed to wine. And when I, I got back from that year, the chair of the history department had asked me, like, well, have you thought about applying for a Fulbright grant? And I was like, no, I had definitely not. You know, that wasn't really mm -hmm. something that I had thought about. And he said, well, I think you should, should think about it. And so they helped me apply for a, a Fulbright grant to go back to Germany after I graduated. Uh, and um, so then I spent a year in Berlin after college doing research. Um, gosh, I could show you the very nerdy, thick report that I wrote on. It was called Never Again War, the Evolution of Post-World War II German Foreign Policy. Uh, it was about you know, Germany's first military intervention since World War II and looking at you know, primary sources. They have lots of political parties in Germany. So what were the political parties saying, sort of civil society, and um, you know, was still kind of on that trajectory of thinking um, PhD. Uh, but I, um, so I decided to apply to the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown and they had a, a program where you could do a master's and then do a PhD to, together. You didn't have to decide right away. I decided not to apply to the PhD program right away and sort of see. Um, and when I went there, I just, it became pretty clear to me quickly that I was more interested in kind of the, the doing rather than um, of policy rather than kind of researching uh, and, and especially on the international policy side of things. So I think, you know, going back to your question about my, my background, it was like I grew up in Wyoming, in a very small town, which you could consider, you know, a pretty sheltered environment. But I think because um, of my mom, you know, being born in Finland and having that kind of European mindset. We have a lot of family back there. My grandparents, you know, they've had an accent and were very tied in with the Finnish community and culture in Astoria. Um, I was always thinking bigger. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't as though, you know, when I graduated from high school that I was, you know, ready to just leave it all behind and never go back. But it was just like, okay, this has been a great launching point for the rest of my life. I don't think I'll be back to live there. And I, I mean, I, I don't intend to, um, but it was a it was a nice place to grow up and a good experience. And my parents being open to the world and us traveling and having other experiences, I think, really shaped who I who I became. So obviously, you mentioned kind of a lot of things uh, before, be sort of before the European Union as a kind of the dream job. So tell us about how that came to be and sort of what your what your initial role was there through kind of how it evolved while in your time working with the European Union. Yeah, so when I was in um, DC, you know, after I had finished up um, grad school, I, you know, rather than joining the Foreign Service, I was kind of really interested in working on Capitol Hill or working on, you know, with Congress. And so I was, um, you know, hoping to do something related to international trade. And that's when I ended up, you know, rather than working on the Hill, working for the law firm and doing some work with um, international clients and other, other clients of theirs. Um, and so I was doing a Capitol Hill training program and I ended up sitting next to one of the diplomats from the European uh, Commission, is what it, it's the um, part of the European Union um, called the European Commission. They then eventually became the European Union delegation. But he was a diplomat and we um, got to talking, kind of connected, and then when an opportunity came up, at the commission, you know, made me aware of it and kind of encouraged me to apply for that, even though it was outside of the area of international trade, but helped me see that um, within those, it was energy, environment, and transportation, there were, you know, strong kind of trade and international aspects to that. So one 
piece that I worked on there was called the um, Open Skies Agreement between the EU and the US, and so that was related to you know basically aviation and a, a, a agreement between the EU and the US. Um, and then we worked on cap and trade legislation, so climate legislation, which ultimately didn't pass in 2010 in Congress. Um, which was unfortunate, but it, it, so that's kind of how I learned about the opportunity and realized that even though the, the part of the delegation that I was going to work in wasn't exactly international trade, it was still gonna be a really interesting opportunity. And it did turn out to be because energy and environment issues were really high on the, and, and transportation were really high on the bilateral agenda at that time point. So, you know, our, the role that I played and the role that the delegation there plays is kind of threefold. You're reporting on what the policy developments are in the country, in the areas of responsibility, and then also, you know, um, talking about what the European Union policies are in those areas and looking for ways to kind of influence what was going on in the US um, in, in those policy spaces and then planning diplomatic visits. So we'd have you know, the equivalent of the US Energy Secretary or the Environmental Protection Agency Administrator or Transportation Secretary come over and we would plan their visits from you know airport pickup to you know what you're gonna have for dinner at the dinner hosted at the ambassador's residence. Uh, and I would sometimes be in you know, rooms of maybe 20, 25 people um, with those you know, two secretaries um, at you know, late 20s, um, and oftentimes one of you know, just a small handful of, of females as well. So DC is a great place to be if you, as a young person, want to get a lot of experience and exposure at a, at a young age. Um, and it was, I mean, one of the best parts was being able to go to a lot of different embassies for, for events. That was really special and something that I still, you know, hold in my mind. One of the uh, apartments that I lived in when I was in D.C. was close to the French ambassador's residence. And so you'd be able to go there sometimes for events over to the German embassy and others. Uh, the European Union, they rotate their presidency between different countries. So you'd kind of one year it would be France, then it would be the U.K. or it would be Finland. And you could go to all these different embassies, which was a lot of fun. And drink nice wine. Well, of course. Right? <laughs> How did the work compare to what you expected? Like, what 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 was the what were your expectations going into a job like that versus what your what what the actual reality was? You know, I don't even know if I really at that point because I'd had you know not a whole lot of professional experience. I'm not sure I really knew what it meant from a you know day-to-day -day practical standpoint. I think it's hard with any job to truly know sometimes what you're going to be doing day-to-day, uh, -day, but I, th I think it was just you know the idea of what it was going to be. Um, you know, I think a lot of it, it was, I think, more uh, high, high level than I even you know kind of expected because as I mentioned, the issues that I was working on were really high up on the agenda. So it felt, um, it felt in line with DC in that you get, you know, access to high-level decision makers pretty regularly as a young person. Um, but it was very much. I think my eyes were just kind of like big and bright a lot of the time, just being like, "Wow, is this really what I get to be doing? Like, I'm having dinner with these people at a nice ambassador's residence." It almost sometimes felt like a little bit of an out-of-body mm -hmm. experience. Like, this is really cool that I get to have um, this experience. And I mean, at some stage, you know, after you do it for a lot of years, uh, you know, that sheen wears off a bit, and it's like, "Oh, okay, I guess I got to go to the." 
German embassy again for an, an event. Um, so like with any job, you know, over time it becomes more regular, those elements, but definitely starting out it was, um, you know, really beyond, I think, what I had expected it to be. Did it feel like, I guess, was the, the efficacy what you hoped for? Did it feel like things were being accomplished? Did it feel like you were making the sort of the differences you hoped to make? You know, I think yes and no. There was a lot of frustration around the climate issue in particular because, um, you know, from the European perspective, they had put in place a cap and trade system to address climate change. It had gotten very close in 2010. And so I think there was a lot of disappointment around like not seeing that happen here in the US. But then there were other areas that were really successful. So, you know, around negotiating the open skies agreement um, and those kind of things. Sometimes, you know, it felt very much like how do we influence such a big government operation, you know, how do you, because you don't call it lobbying, it's diplomacy. And so finding ways to try to influence the policy process in appropriate ways can be a bit, a bit nuanced. So, and especially as being the European Union, you're not a country, you know, it's a collection of countries working collaboratively. So there were sometimes you know, member states of the European Union would feel like the delegation was going too far trying to lead on issues where it maybe didn't have competency or, um, you know, trying to figure out with Congress, like, who is this entity and why are we listening to them? Um, that could sometimes be, be a challenge. So I would say, you know, there were definitely wins and there were definitely areas that were disappointments and, and more complicated than, than expected. And I'm sort of curious, coming, coming away from that after that kind of experience, what did you sort of feel like uh, how would you define diplomacy, or how would you define sort of how you uh, approached diplomacy? I think it was, you know, different than what I would say, like a true diplomat, someone that's out in country. And also, you know, for the work that we were doing, there was no consular affairs, and that's a huge part of diplomatic work um, because the EU, as I mentioned, isn't a country. There isn't, you know, EU citizenship. You're a citizen of a country. It was a, it was only a small slice of what you know, diplomatic life is, is really like. Uh, and so I have friends that have done diplomatic work, you know, really lived in country and um, done the experience that way. And so I think my, my situation was unique. It was kind of, uh, I don't want to say halfway, but a bit, you know, because I was still living in the US and trying to influence policy, you know, in my own country on behalf of, you know, another Entity, you know, I was also, you know, had Finnish citizenship. So it, it was, I would say it was kind of a, a unique experience, and I couldn't comment kind of just on, you know, how it relates to what other diplomatic experiences would be like because it's pretty unique, that role, not serving as a, actually a diplomat. Sure, sure, sure. So you mentioned uh, you came to, or came to Oregon in 2012, and, and wine wasn't really top, top, of, top of mind at that point. So tell me about. Um, initial impressions of Oregon and uh, of the wine industry as you sort of started to see it? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I, I think by, by that point in my awareness, you know, Oregon was, and I had primarily, you know, been focused on the Willamette Valley um, for visits like I hadn't yet been able to explore other parts of the state like I did um, subsequently. Uh, and so, you know, one of the um, experiences, you know, had been to Oregon as a tourist prior to moving out here. I mean, tourist 
it's funny to say that because I had family. So growing up, I never considered myself a tourist. But when I think about like going wine tasting, I think of myself as a tourist. Uh, but you know, so kind of as an adult coming to Oregon and trying wine, um, I had visited a number of wineries in the Dundee Hills and kind of stayed out there. And Domaine Duran was a place that I had gone to and really enjoyed. And then while living in London, had made a trip to Burgundy. And that was one of the first places to say like, oh, well, let's reach out to Duran to see if it'd be possible to go visit, you know, the, the home site. And that was a very cool visit. So, you know, I had, um, when I moved out here, I'd kind of had some of that experience with the industry and knew that it was very high quality and, um, you know, was such a beautiful environment just to go visit and all the fog and, you know, beautiful rolling hills. Um, but when I moved out here, as I mentioned, it was more uh, focused on, renewable energy, you know, something related to climate change. And so that was more of my networking focus than thinking, um, you know, of the wine industry. Because my perspective was more like, oh, that's more hospitality. And that's not, you know, what I was necessarily looking for at that point um, as a full-time full -time gig. Uh, so, you know, went out to some wine events and, you know, wine tasting and, again, had very positive views of the industry, but not necessarily from a career perspective. So I was really pleased when that opportunity came across uh, my desk um, because I was, you know, I would say it was a bit of a bumpy transition moving out here because I had had the experiences that I had, which were more, it was federal experience international experience and when I moved out here you know I would explain those experiences to people and some you know in job interviews and be like well have you had Oregon political experience I'm like well I was kind of getting those other experiences that I was mentioning and so you know Oregon can be a bit insular and people introduce themselves hello I'm so and so I'm a seventh generation Oregonian or whatever generation Oregonian and so I, it was a little bit hard at first to kind of translate my experience into the the framework here especially as it relates to you know policy and politics which is so relational who you know um, and and so it took a little while to get connected to connect it in and so you know as I mentioned I met our lobbyist who's still our lobbyist Dan Jarman through networking and um, and I think in also you know Tom Danowski who um, was the president at that point for OWA and the Oregon Wine Board you know Tom had had experience on the East Coast in New York and I think he he understood and appreciated my experience maybe more than someone that hadn't had some of those experiences them, themselves so I think he saw um, that I had an interesting resume and could be really uh, beneficial for the industry from, you know, having had the ag background, the policy background, the interest in wine, and enough experience, I guess, to, like, get myself in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> I love when people ask me the question, you know, that aren't in the industry, oh, you must know so much about wine. I'm like, I am scratching the surface. Mm -hmm. uh, the people who know about wine are the ones who are making it, growing the grapes, even selling, selling the wine. Mm -hmm. I, um, I still consider myself more of a wine aficionado than any sort of expert. Yeah, another, another feeling. I get the same the same reaction. I'm like, I don't really know them. I know about people on wine. I don't know about wine. I can connect you with people exactly. who know a lot about exactly. wine. Exactly. So tell me about the job you started in um, and what sort of the initial uh, initial challenges and initial sort of goals were for you as you started working with the Wine Growers Association. So the Wine Growers was uh, founded um, 
1981 in its current form, so been around for more than 40 years. Before that, uh, and you may have covered this in some of your interviews, but there were two groups, one in the UBQA, the Oregon Wine Growers Association, and then one in the Willamette Valley called the Wine Growers Council of Oregon, and those formed in the 60s, late 60s more as um, you know, sharing technical information, social, et cetera. But in 1977, the Oregon legislature was looking at increasing the wine privilege tax. And so those groups decided they needed to start working together more on, and more on, you know, statewide policy issues. I think they'd been more engaged in some local land use um, issues over the years. Uh, and so then decided it was important to speak with one voice kind of as an industry and so came together and like worked on a merger to create one statewide entity. Uh, and I think in the early days, um, have you interviewed Bill Nelson? Bill has all of this history, but, uh, you know, there was a map, and so OWA would, if you were a member of OWA, you could be on the map, but if you weren't, um, then, you know, if you weren't a member, then you weren't on the map, so that was one of the, one of the big reasons to, to join the organization. Uh, and so over time, finding ways to, you know, get people to pay their dues, you know, it was always a challenge in a, an organization where you don't have to be a member. So. OWA had had, uh, you know, from my understanding, kind of like part-time people working on projects. You know, the um, when the Oregon Wine Board was founded in 2003, it was like, well, the 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 head of that would be for both organizations, and we would be in the same office to try to, you know, manage costs and, um, you know, have good collaboration between the organizations. And that model, um, you know, worked for a long time. But so when I started in 2012, um, my role had been created just a year prior, and there was someone that had would been hired. Um, and then she ended up moving down to San Francisco and leaving the job. So it was very early in its creation of my role um, that I that I took over. And I think you know the biggest challenge starting out was just you know funding, making sure the organization could actually support a full-time staff person uh, and you know other costs. And so uh, again, when I started out, it was doing both the government affairs side of things, although we had you know our lobbyist at the state level, and then we've worked with Davis Wright Tremaine, which is a law firm. Um, Jess Lyon has been our general counsel for 20 plus years. So, um, but to do kind of the membership piece and the government affairs coordination, so the running of our policy committees that talk about all the issues. So I would say you know kind of making sure that folks were paying their dues so we could actually support the work of the organization was front of mind um, at the start. And when I, also when I started, it was at the tail end of land use um, conversations within the industry, which was a multi-year process and a lot of, um, a few different bills that passed with sunset clauses as the industry tried to figure out what the right policy was around what activities and events would be allowed at wineries that were on farmland. Because uh, you know farmland here in Oregon is, you know, you're meant to be farming and there are certain uses that are allowed. Um, and we were trying to help put some guardrails around, you know, the number of events and activities while still allowing wineries the chance to um, promote their, their wines. And so I kind of came in at the tail end of that and in the 2013 legislative session we, um, passed a bill that was the kind of comprehensive 
um, land use bill related to winery events and activities. And so those were the two things that were really occupying the attention kind of in this first year or two that I was with OWA. So tell me about how you got to know the industry. What was what were the sort of the, the strategies you took to start to understand the different players involved and the different sort of issues you were kind of walking into? Well, you know, it was there was kind of the laundry list of here's the people that you should meet with when I started. Um, these are, you know, key players within the industry. Uh, of course, our board members. Um, yeah, but it was really, you know, kind of a lot of one-on-one -on -one conversations and then events, you know, the bigger events that were happening within the industry, the Oregon Wine Symposium, which we co-host with the Oregon Wine Board, um, IPNC. Um, I did o Oregon Pinot Camp. Um, pretty early on. So really, you know, and that's where, you know, when I was saying earlier about blurring hobbies and, and work, um, I still managed to do that here in Oregon because you know, a lot of this stuff was fun um, and still is fun, but it was especially fun in those early days where like, oh, I have to go out to wineries and like meet with people and learn about this really fun, amazing product. And honestly, if you're going to work in advocacy, working for something like Oregon Wine is a lot easier than working for something that's less popular and appealing. Yeah, the word wine opens a lot of doors. It does. Yeah, a lot of people are excited about it. So what, what did you see as the challenges facing the industry at that point? What were people telling you in those meetings that were that caused you to think, this is something I'm going to have to work on or something we're going to have to work toward? You know, I think it was really about finding the right balance. Um, when it came to policy issues, so the right balance within the industry uh, and also with you know external stakeholders, like realizing it's a very complex business, wine, especially on the policy side, because you're talking farming and all the land use things that come with that, and pesticides, and you know coexisting with other ag um, groups and neighbors, and then you're manufacturing, and that comes along with making a wine and being a manufacturer, hospitality selling alcohol and things that come along with that. So there's a lot of complex issues and a lot of stakeholders involved. But I think even in those early days with the land use <clears throat> conversation, I mean, it's, it, and we still see it today, it's, you know, people in the southern part of the state may have different needs than folks in the Dundee Hills or right in, you know, very densely populated portion of the Willamette Valley. And how do we balance those various viewpoints and different business types and models. So to try to, you know, here in Oregon uh, with the OWA, we have one entity that has the growers and wineries. If you look at Washington or California, they have separate groups for growers and wineries. And so we're really trying to come um, to, to solutions and, and policies that can be broadly supported. And, you know, that, that can be challenging to try to find that right balance. So I think that was clear early on. There's, a, as I mentioned, a lot of passionate people in the industry and people have, you know, their different ideas about, you know, how things should be done and how limited or how expansive things should be. Uh, and so it's a delicate balancing act. I think, you know, people want to be heard. And so we've, I think we've tried, I wouldn't say always, you know, with perfect success, but try to listen to people and hear various viewpoints and try to work, you know, even if it's with different iterations of bills and policies to, 
you know, come up with something that people can can live with. It's kind of that art of, of compromise. But I, I do think the listening part and people feeling like they're being heard is really important. So how has your role kind of expanded and changed since you've, you've been there? What, and tell me about sort of what it looks like now. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, as I mentioned at the beginning, we, well, we were in the Albers Mill building, building, which is right by the Broadway Bridge. Uh, that's where some other ag groups are, like the Wheat Commission, the Wheat League. Um, and, um, you know, but we moved on from that space. I think it was even in 2013, but it's funny, those, those early, that early year is still like bright in my mind. I can still, you know, see us all in that space. Uh, and then we moved over to another space along um, the waterfront. And, you know, there was a lot of, it was great being in the same office with the Oregon Wine Board folks because I could really pick up on a lot of things that were happening more on the marketing side of things or business trends. Um, you know, Tom Danowski is a really smart person and he would, you know, have a lot of, you know, thoughts and ideas and information to, to share. And so, um, you know, I think my role, you know, I started off in that kind of manager role and then just over time moved up. We were able to add a second position at OWA in 2014 um, with, primarily with revenue that we generate, um, you know, at the trade show and also from membership dues really to be more of a, a service on the membership side of things and kind of the communications and events side. Um, you know, in the early years, it was a lot of you know just trying to figure out how to get everything done you know and who to collaborate with and to try to get some additional additional help and it's been it was really fantastic to be able to add a second person to feel like we had more of an you know an OWA team and we've stayed at that we haven't grown um, beyond that um, in uh, 20 20, um, we more formally split from the wine board in the sense that, you know, up to that point, we had from 2003 to 2020 taken on the same nine directors from the Oregon Wine Board that were appointed by the governor. And that model was no longer working, you know, in the sense that the industry had grown. It's a lot of responsibility to take on both of those boards and keep eyes on all of the issues that, um, that needed to be uh, kept on. And so I think, um, you know, and there were changes within the industry, you know, more players, larger players. And so it was a time where we decided, um, you know, that we should update our bylaws. And those very, you know, bylaws always sound very, very exciting. But in 2020, went through a process of uh, breaking that prior and going back to a formal model, which was, you know, membership elected. And so a lot of change happened for the organization in 2019 to 2020. And that was resulting, you know, from some disagreement within the industry around wine labeling and what, you know, what the right thing to do in that space was. So I think it helped highlight for us that having a dedicated board for OWA issues was really important because it is the policy issues are so complex and to really be able to focus on those is really important and uh, so I think it's been you know in many ways a benefit to both organizations to be able to have nine for each and really to be able to focus in on the issues for each organization but that meant you know we moved out of the office actually it was end of February 2020 right before COVID and we had decided not to get an office 
at that time, which turned out to be really smart uh, because of COVID. So we, you know, put everything in a storage unit, and um, and then COVID hit. So, uh, you know, it was a lot of I think change for us at the same time to move out of the office. You know, COVID hitting. I took over as executive director in January of 2020. We went to the bylaws process, and then we brought on nine new board directors in September of 2020. So I would say, you know. If, for me, the you know some of the, the a lot of the structure changed. Uh, it was pretty consistent between 2012 and 2019, and then big change in in 2020. Um, but a lot of you know what we do has has stayed stayed the same. With that new with the new new title executive director, the new obviously new board that's just for the OWA. Um, tell me about how that did change. What were the changes to your role and to your sort of responsibility? Well, you know, before I became executive director, I was focused on, you know, the policy side of the equation um, and also membership. So, like, you know, Jessica Blauert works with me on the team, but, you know, as her kind of supervisor, ultimate responsibility is still, you know, with me to be like, are we hitting our membership targets? Are we meeting our goals there? Um, so it added to that plate um, kind of the well, the leadership elements of an organization, but also kind of the day-to-day -day operational side of things. So budgeting, you know, paying bills, making sure, you know, HR things are taken care of, board administration, um, those aspects in addition to, you know, what we had been doing, um, trying to be effective on the regulatory and legislative side, legal side, uh, member services, um, those elements. So kind of added to the plate at the time um, of COVID, which was very hectic because there was a lot happening with shutdowns and regulations. So it was 2020 was definitely a challenging year. That was actually my next question. So tell, obviously two different kind of two wholly different challenges in 2020 between the pandemic and then the, 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 the fire season that year. So tell me about for both of those, how that affected your work and sort of the, the, the challenges presented and the, the, the pivots you had to make. Well, uh, one other element that was going on in 2020 is um, I had a baby in June, so of June 1st of 2020, um, and so just trying to figure out, you know, how to have coverage for the organization while I was gone in the midst of COVID. So Kevin Chambers, who was our um, board president at the time, Kevin really helped up to try to fill that leadership void for a few months while um, I was away, and then the fires happened. Um, you know, I was still still out kind of when the fires happened, but came back right you know, in September, um, or sorry, the end of September, so trying to help kind of navigate through all, all of that. So I would say, you know, as for most people in 2020, it was just a series of kind of pivoting or like trying, I hate to say put this fire out, but, you know, kind of just trying to plug the holes in the boat so it doesn't, <laughs> um, you know, doesn't sink. I think it was a really, you know, there was a lot of collaboration happening between organizations within the industry and other, you know, stakeholder groups, a lot of information sharing. Um, you know, so I think in some ways it was kind of a coalescing time as much as it was challenging as well. It was, you know, kind of everyone was in a similar situation. We were all trying to kind of figure out and offer as best service as we possibly could under those circumstances. But, you know, I sometimes look back at 2020 and I'm like, that was an interesting year because, you know, not only taking over as executive director, you know, organizational splits and challenges, COVID, wildfires, nine new board directors, having a child, um, you know, it was, you just kind of keep 
plugging along. <laughs> I mean, I'm proud of where we've gotten as an organization. Um, you know, I think our board, they're just finishing their first term altogether, nine of them, and we'll have eight of the nine returning for a second term. You know, having that strong leadership and also with myself and Jessica Blauert having been with OWA for so long, I think it allowed us to remain very relevant and viable and, you know, successful in terms of continuing to serve the industry and deliver results uh, because there were a lot of challenges coming our way at the same time. And we have a really strong foundation right now, so I'm, I'm proud of that that we were able to kind of get through a lot of these challenges. And I mean, there's still challenges out there. There are always going to be. But I think, you know, as an organization, as an entity, we're in a, a, a strong place. So looking back on the challenges that you saw as you came into the organization, uh, what has changed and what do you see now as the sort of the, your biggest role or the biggest things you have to pay attention to? Well, the things that have changed are, you know, just even the size of the industry, it's grown so much since 2012. And different types of business models that are out there, you know, larger entities, you know, you wouldn't have imagined a, you know, a million case winery back in the day, um, you know, and we're, we're just seeing a lot of change in that regard for the industry, a lot of you know, fruit that's being sold out of state and you know, what that means for, for the industry. So I think trying to you know, accommodate everyone uh, you know, just becomes more challenging the more players you have in an industry. Uh, in terms of the issues that we're facing, you know, a lot of them are similar. You know, they, they're ones that keep coming up year after year. But I think one big change that we're seeing out there is uh, you know, that's kind of the heyday of craft beverage. Um, you're seeing more questions come up in, particularly in policy discussions about alcohol and should we be making alcohol more available? Should we be taxing alcohol more to, to pay for um, substance abuse and recovery, those types of, of conversations. So if we're trying to get a bill passed in the legislature, you know, for instance, one a few years ago to expand how much wine you can direct ship to Oregon consumers. There now are, would be questions like, is this the right thing to do? Should we be increasing access or should we be looking at ways to kind of restrict access? And, you know, we like to talk about wine, um, you know, the unique attributes of wine, but it is, you know, part of kind of the broader alcohol space. So I think that's been probably the biggest change that I've seen, at least on the on the policy side of things. Also, uh, more and more legislators that have an urban focus than kind of that rural lens. So trying to, you know, use the wine industry, which is a good good bridge to those leaders um, as a way to show, you know, the importance of supporting agriculture and the good things that can come to rural communities from focusing on um, on those agricultural sectors and in particular you know we look at wine and the hospitality opportunities also you know opportunities in winemaking and wine growing um, so I think you know we've seen a little we've seen a big shift that, that does make me think of something else which is we have seen a big shift in how politics is done in the state when I when I started we really talked about you know the Oregon way how you know we worked so in such a bipartisan manner and we've seen that become a much bigger challenge in the last years how has the you mentioned kind of the change in how we view how alcohol is being viewed 
Uh, tell me about how the alcohol market has changed. Uh, it seems like in the last decade there have been a lot of changes within it. How does that affect your work and how does that affect sort of the Oregon wine brand? Well, branding isn't my expertise, so I'm not going to delve too much into that. But I will say, you know, what we see around, um, you know, kind of wine at a plateau, you know, not growing the way it used to. So really trying to tap into new demographics. There's more competition out there with ready-to-drink cocktails, hard seltzers, more focus on, you know, dry January, dry July, things like that. So I think, uh, you know, when we look at the work that OWA does, it's like, how can we, um, I'm thinking about this because I was at a few events today with um, Senators Merkley and Wyden around kind of trade issues and market access. How do we break down some of those barriers, international trade barriers, so that there are more opportunities for, for export and really trying to tap into consumers around, you know, around the world and nationally? Um, as I mentioned, wine uh, alcohol regulation is very complex um, due to you know, prohibition, the repeal of that. And so you have 50 states with different regulations, um, and that is really complex, so trying to continue to um, address those concerns. We partner a lot with the Wine Institute out of California and Wine America, which is a national trade association. Um, they have a little bit broader reach than we're able to do as Oregon, but to really try to make sure that there are opportunities in all the states, you know, and internationally to, um, you know, get wine into the hands of consumers that want it in a, you know, safe and, um, you know, thoughtful manner. Yeah. So as you look ahead for Oregon wine, from sort of from your perspective, what uh, comes next and what is your role in what comes next? Well, I think we have a lot of challenges around, um, you know, climate change and the impacts that that's having on the industry. And even in just the last years, you know, we've seen wildfire smoke, we've seen, um, you know, freeze situations, heat domes, a lot of those types of challenges. So I think water is one big area. We uh, put together a subcommittee. We have, we have a few policy committees. One is called Land Use and Natural Resources. And that group talks a lot about the land use system and, you know, events and activities on farmland. And, but one other area that we've really focused on is water. We set up a subcommittee of that group to really delve into what do our current, you know, usage look like and needs into the future? What are ways that we can try to insert ourselves into policy conversations to try to achieve some of our Aims. Um, water policy is extremely complex. Uh, they say um, whiskey is for drinking, wa water is for fighting. Um, so you know we're not we're not looking at like let's upend the system and how how it works. But how can we try to m make some changes within the system to encourage conservation? So there's a concept: use it or lose it. If you're not using your water right, then you lose it. So that sometimes le can lead to to waste. So how do we encourage more conservation in the system? maybe making water accessible to other users within the system without someone losing their water right, uh, more investment in infrastructure so that there isn't waste. Like if you have um, you know, water that's just exposed, there's evapotranspiration, things of that nature, water theft that has come up with illegal cannabis growing in parts of the state. Um, so I'd say you know, water is one area where I see us playing you know, a big role, um, you know, again, around climate change. So you know, what opportunities are there for people around crop insurance, which is a, 
a federal tool to try to you know bridge year to year. It's hard for a value-added crop like ours because we're or industry like ours because you're just talking about the crop, not the the wine at the end, which is um, what you're trying to sell and make money off of. But you know, disaster assistance and really trying to be you know um, adapting to. And we hope still, you know, policies around mitigating climate change. Um, again, this conversation around, um, you know, access to alcohol, ensuring that our, you know, our tasting rooms are serving responsibly and that we maintain, uh, you know, our delivery services are checking IDs and following all the important protocols that are out there so that we can maintain the ability for our wineries to direct ship because, you know, the consolidation within distribution is very difficult, um, you know, and we're seeing right now, you know, an attempt for uh, a merger of very large grocery chains, and that just further restricts the opportunities for producers to get into, um, into distribution and into important outlets. And so how do we continue to encourage opportunities for wineries to get into distribution, to promote, you know, more, um, you know, trade practices that allow for more competition. Uh, tourism, I think, is a huge challenge right now for our state. Um, you know, getting those tourists here and buying wine and going back home and being wine club members. So really, you know, kind of protecting that um, direct-to-consumer system while also, you know, encouraging more uh, opportunities for, for distribution, I think, is going to be really important. Those are a couple of thoughts that, that come to mind about how we can be um, play a role there. There's a lot, lot more we could dig into. <laughs> uh, you know, I'd say as an organization, you know, as you figure out where we can have maximum impact, it's hard to engage on every single issue, but really we see our unique roles. Like, is there, what is the wine industry's position on this particular topic and how can we, um, you know, have that, have that addressed through, through policy? We see ourselves as a service organization. We're here, you know, to, to help our members, to, to help the industry, to try to be responsive. And so we have our, we also have a public policy committee and that's where we vet a lot of these issues. Um, another big one that's coming down the line is what we do with wine packaging. So around sustainability, wineries will have to start playing a role in that um, in the next couple of years. And so what's the right path forward for addressing that? You know, are we gonna join the bottle bill? Um, or a different program that's being set up. So I think that's going to be a really interesting area to follow, too. And then workforce challenges, whether it's in the vineyard, um, on the production side, tasting rooms, um, you know, costs of goods and services are going up. It's just, you know, there's a lot of these death by a thousand cuts. So trying to, you know, where we can raise those issues with policymakers and let them know, you know, the more programs you put in place that have costs, the, you know, more regulatory requirements, all those things can, can add up and to be mindful. I think our industry wants to be and is thoughtful and wants to be very, you know, responsible, treat our workers well, treat the environment well, be part of the community, um, you know, but there's also, you know, a, sometimes a cost that come to things and so just trying to figure out the right balance and reflect that in the policies that we support or don't support. You mentioned early on how important it was for Oregon Wine to have kind of like a singular voice and to be to be to be heard. I'm curious how you've in your experience and how you feel um, how is the how 
much is the voice listened to? How, how, how much sway does Oregon Wine have and how often is, is sort of the policy you're pushing for enacted? I think the Oregon wine industry has a good reputation. And again, you know, um, our approach at OWA is, you know, we may get to a no on something, but we're going to take time to hear people out, learn about what it is, you know, have a thoughtful conversation, and then yes, we may get to no, um, but it, 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 we want to we want to think about something very um, thoughtfully. Uh, and so, you know, I, th I think that's appreciated by decision makers. They know the wine industry is going to reflect on things and maybe not just kind of immediately say no. Um, and if we do say no, it's in a, in a thoughtful way. So I think overall, we enjoy a good um, relationship with policymakers, uh, you know, very strong with our federal delegation, which I cover federal issues for OWA. Um, so, you know, our state lobbyists are really um, a little more attuned to those individual relationships. But overall, we're just in the process of reinvigorating our, we call it the Oregon Legislative Wine Caucus, which um, Senator Jackie Winters from Salem, who, who passed away a few years ago, she was really instrumental in that group. And so we've got some legislators that are really excited about reinvigorating that. And that's a way for us to, you know, educate about the industry, um, and develop strong relationships with our legislators so when you know issues come up we we are able to be effective just as one example from our last legislative session we were able to get about four hundred and fifty thousand dollars from the state kind of in a very sh shortened time frame I mean it was well into the session usually these things you want to try to get support before a session uh, but it was a problem that has just become more um, that, that over the last couple of years has become more in our awareness and um, the ask came together kind of late in the session that's around the vine mealy bug um, challenge in uh, a very localized area of, of southern Oregon. So can we get ahead of that before it becomes more of a problem in other parts of the state? And so some funding was needed and that was put together very late in the game and we were able to get really strong support from the legislature for that. So I think that reflects back, um, you know, they want to be helpful to the industry. They see us as, you know, important economic driver in the state. Also a very tangible product when you go outside of Oregon, like, hey, this is, this is a piece of Oregon that we can um, pass along to our, you know, friends and colleagues um, that reflects really well on the state. Um, so I think, you know, that was a pretty long-winded way of saying, yes, I think overall, you know, we've been able to develop strong relationships with our legislators. There's been a lot of turnover in the last years. So it's a continuing, um, you know, education process to have them understand all that our industry does and has to deal with. Uh, so it's it's never something that we feel is is complete. It's um, we're always having to educate and um, build those relationships. So that's just kind of a muscle memory for us. Something that we do constantly. So just look ahead for the future for yourself. Uh, anything else you're looking ahead to, either personally or professionally, that's on the horizon? Hmm. Well, uh, that's a good question. You know, I've been with OWA. A long time. Um, I think it's 11 years now, and I would say this industry—it's just kind of endlessly fascinating. I mean, there's so much to learn. I feel like even now, after all these years, I've kind of scratched the surface on, um, you know, understanding the industry and um, all the, you know, 
exciting things that are going on. Um, and so I think that that for me is very important that in, in a role I feel you know, kind of challenged and intellectually stimulated and there's, there's no end to like new challenges and opportunities going on um, within the industry. But you know, I'd like to see if there's a way you know, for OWA, because one thing that's important to me um, is kind of the philanthropic side of things. So I look at an organization like WVWA and what they do around the community and like is there more that OWA could do in that space, um, you know, we have our plates full doing the work that we're doing, but I think it's always important to look, you know, a little more broadly and say, is there some need that we could fill? You know, some challenge that our industry is facing where we could try to be, be, um, be of assistance. So I'm going to be thinking in that space um, a bit more. My last question for you is, um, what do you look back on with? Uh, what, what makes you proudest? What's the proudest accomplishment so far? I would probably say what we talked about with 2020. I feel like you know it was a time where um, you know we could have seen our role diminish for the industry, and I think it took you know the dedicated effort of a lot of people, myself included, to make sure you know that this organization that for 40 years has really been key to you know helping the industry become what it is today that we're in the position that we're in now in such a strong position because I think you know policy work uh, it's it's you know a lot of people get really passionate about it but most people don't they're like oh, regulations policy but it's really important work you know if you look back it's like low or no wine taxes these protect land use protections, wine labeling, creation of the Oregon Wine Board, funding for Oregon State University for um, and other research entities around Vit and Eno, like wine country license plate, uh, you know, all of these things are really important to the industry. And so I'm proud that we are in such a strong position as an organization and that we in, then can continue to try to create a climate where and support a climate where our industry is able to thrive and grow and you know address the myriad of challenges that are coming our way kind of every day. Right. That's all the questions that I have for you. Uh, anything I didn't ask that I should have, anything we didn't cover here today that you'd like to cover? You know, maybe just, you know, talking about what I, you know, kind of take with me from from this experience is just, you know, a lot of really great relationships over the years and a lot of, you know, kudos that I give to people who have, you know, taken up a lot of their time um, to try to help support the industry. I think that's really what it takes. Like, I've, you know, been more on the I'm not a wine producer, a winemaker, and so you know I'm helping support this industry, but I'm not you know making the product. And those folks are not only doing that, but they're helping build the ecosystem around the entire industry. So I just I've been really impressed with a lot of folks that have stepped up with their personal time and passion to try to you know help this industry um, thrive. And so I'm. I'm happy to have met so many great people in this industry. Met many of them as well, myself. Yeah. It's fantastic. Thank you so much for your time, sharing your stories with us, uh, and I will go ahead and let you off the hook. All right, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. 
Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. With a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.